This is Cam Slater, and you're listening to Dirty Politics. Welcome to the Dirty Politics podcast. Tonight with Simon Lusk, I have professional statistician Peter Ellis, who's going to talk to us about his amazing online Prediction model, I guess, is the best way to describe it. How would you describe it, Peter? Welcome. Yeah, g'day. Thanks. So, well, basically, I guess you could say, um, I mean, I've got an offshoot of my blog, which uh, I, I developed at one point. It's basically making what I call probabilistic predictions of the New Zealand election in September. So, basically, what it's predicting is probabilities of how things are going to go. So, it's not actually saying, you know, these people will win or these people won't. It's giving a chance for the various different outcomes. What, is it um, time dependent? I mean, is it is it uh, sort of a snapshot in time that gives us a guide for what's happening now and then it'll change tomorrow and it'll keep changing up until election day? Or is it something that predicts now what will happen on the 23rd of September? So it's, it's predicting what's going to happen on the 23rd. And so um, it's a bit more sophisticated than just taking a, a poll aggregator or a weighted average of the polls because it's basically looking at all the sources of uncertainty that we've got. So some of that is just like the sampling uncertainty with the polls, which is the plus or minus 2 or 3% that you know people always talk about when they talk about with the polls. But on top of that, there's also there's this thing that statisticians call total survey error, which is more to do with things like the the fact that the sampling's not perfect. So like when, when they work out that two or three percent, that's the that's the maths which you actually use for if you've got a fridge full of test tubes and you've got to pick some of the test tubes at random and, and measure them. The maths works really well for that. When you've got things like response bias and some people don't have phones and some people never read surveys on the internet, all of those things contribute to this total survey error, which is bigger than the, the two or three percent that's the sampling error. But then the other thing, this comes to what you you're asking, Simon, is the um, there's a time series element of it as well. So, like, even if we knew exactly what people were intending to vote today, over the next six weeks or so, they might change their mind. In fact, we know very well that they are very likely to change their mind because, in fact, the what you see in political science is what the the polls uh, go up and down more than you'd expect from a model that was just trying to predict the election based on, mm. say, unemployment and, and so forth. Well, we, we see we see that, don't we, each election where the polls that come out, say, in the final week um, are close, but you always, well, under MMP at least, you see National and Labor, the big parties, slide away somewhat for the final result and the smaller parties increase. Yeah, Except for the Greens. Yes, yeah, they go right. down. Yeah, generally the Greens are overestimated by the pulses for various reasons. So in terms of how often my model gets updated, um, basically, as, as it currently sits, it only gets updated when there's new polling information. So, like, down the track, you know, I, I have some ideas for models that will take on board, you know, economic information and so on, but they're not in there at the moment. So what, it, what all it does is... Uh, when there's a new uh, poll come out, it will feed that into the model, which is basically predicting where people are going to be on the 23rd of September. 
So how how should listeners be using the information you're providing? What what, what should they be looking for, and how should they be using it in um, in their own predictions? Well, the um, the big thing. So the, the the headline, which is on my um, the the main page with the elections, is there's just a little bar chart that's just showing the the chances of four or five different outcomes. Hmm. So it is. It's basically labelled. It's about a 60% chance of New Zealand first being needed for anyone to form a government. And so, apart from anything else, that's that's you know, simple to me to to know that there's a prediction of 60% chance of that. Most of the rest of the chance comes down to um, a, a national-led coalition that looks pretty much the same as the current one, and quite a small chance of national being able to govern by themselves. So if, so if, we, also... just, so if we just touch on that for a second, because Bill English has come out and said that he wants to work with the existing parties. So on your model, we can tick ACT, Maori, National and United Future, and then run that, or it runs it automatically. And then, am I right in reading this? It says here, the chance of coalition of ACT, Maori, National and United Future winning more than 50% of the f- seats is... 0.34 is it that's 34 percent right yeah that's so so and, and, i mean uh you know you could or if, if if you're mr english you could you could see what happens if you take some of those parties out and like if i take act out the chance goes down to 23 oh, yeah. yeah so if we take out all of those except for national of course and put in new zealand first your model says one yeah. So basically, what that's prediction is that if National and New Zealand First decided to go together, they've basically got a hundred percent chance of of getting more than fifty percent of the seats. So we can swap that out, swap National out for Labor and New Zealand First, and zero percent chance of that getting across the line. That's right. So they they need to join up with some other parties, of course. Okay, so we add the Greens in, and you've got a 54% chance of that getting across the line. This is really useful. I'm finding this kind of sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Using it in the right way, looking at the different probabilities and and having a more realistic view rather than just an opinion base that everyone thinks that Winston is going to hold the the balance of power. Yeah, so, I mean, that's right. So what I'm showing is it's that's quite likely to happen, but it's it's far from certain. So there's an interesting story behind that that particular page we're talking about here is that like when I when I first uh, published the model, and it's quite a complex thing, of course, with the, all the multi-party systems. Like if you're in Australia or the US, there's just one headline number, which is you know the chance of whichever way you want to do it is is going to be the winner. With here, there's all the possibilities of different coalitions forming even after the election day. And so I, I picked four or five that seemed to my uneducated, I'm not even a New Zealander, so I'm the last person should be saying these seem to be the likely coalition groupings given probabilities. And someone pointed out that uh, you know, it was a sort of a bit presumptuous of me and, uh, you know, it would be much better if we could let people arbitrarily choose to make make their own. So I knocked up this little uh, interactive web page, which is the one that you're obviously looking at. So, yeah, you can, you can play around and make whatever unlikely... Uh, coalition you want to do and, and actually get a distribution of how many seats they're going to get between them. Well, you know, I find it really interesting. I also found it interesting your 
uh, important electorates, electorate uh, Epsom and Ohariu. If yeah. we if we slide back uh, Ohariu and to give Greg O'Connor a better chance that he's going to beat Peter Dunn, it actually makes life mm. harder for for Labour to form a government. Uh, by the by, what I can see there, much yeah, harder. Let me, have, let me have a look at that. There was something going on there. Well, I think it relates to list seats because if uh, Labour wins Ohariu, then they lose a list seat. Yeah, there must be something something to do with that. So it gets quite complicated because of the um, what they call them the overhang seats. So that if uh, if if uh, if if Peter Dunn gets in, he's uh, basically. If, if if he wins his electorate seat, but his party vote is less than whatever would be needed, 0.8%, that, that would justify having a seat in Parliament, you get this extra seat in Parliament. And it's really quite interesting to see how that slightly changes those things there. Mm. So this is one one reason, of course, why we... Peter, does does the model take into account um, the the likelihood that the last two months are the crucial ones for a new party like Top, or are you just doing it on on the current numbers rather than looking at, at historic data for new parties that rise rapidly near the election? Yeah, so well, it's it's really difficult with uh, the Opportunities Party because. Um, there's, there's not much of a polling record behind them. And I think uh, even now, I think they're not actually featuring in polls. I think they've been wrapped up into other, in, in some of the polls which have been published. So I'm, I'm basically following that. I'm just putting them into um, other. Now, if it looked like they were likely to be getting over 5%, I'd um, need to need to change that. So I'm keeping, keeping an eye on that would definitely make things quite a bit harder for me because one of the things that the model does is it looks at how the various pollsters have gone with each party uh, in previous elections. So like you were mentioning before that, you know, New Zealand First often does a bit better than the polls say and the Greens often do a bit worse. So obviously we've got no idea what the uh, party is going to be like in that sense. I was talking to a editor of a uh, major news outlet the other day, and he suggested to me that most media will reduce the number of polls for this election than they've previously run. He gave me a whole lot of various different reasons. Is is that going to significantly affect your model? Um, it'll, it'll certainly mean that the predictions aren't going to be as good. Um, it doesn't it doesn't affect uh, me in the sense of like you know if no one ran any more polls. From now on, the prediction would stay exactly the same as it currently is. So the more polls we have, the um, the more those probabilities will uh, converge towards a particular conclusion as, as the data becomes clearer on that. But if, if they don't do any more polls, like I can still produce my predictions as well as I can. So um, does the, the limited polling data um, that we have here impact on, on your website and your model? Well, basically, I mean, it doesn't change the theory at all. Um, and the model I'm using is actually very similar to ones which people use, say, for the US election or the UK election, where there's many more orders of magnitude more polling available. Yeah. Um, 
that adds to the big um, wax of uncertainty. So um, the, the, one of the things is, of course, that some of the other, other countries have got complications we don't. So like in the US, obviously, very famously, there's the complication of the Electoral College. And uh, so they, they have to predict not just the overall national vote, but how it's going to go in each state. Mm. So, so for us, so long as we can have a reasonable estimate at the national level, you know, you've got a, a pretty good estimate of how things are going to come about. So as you say, apart from the complications of the electorate seats, it's the national party vote, which um, national level party vote, which, which which drives everything. So here we only get like a couple of polls a month, and there's only three firms regularly doing them now. And the sample sizes are small, about 800 normally. So that's that's definitely a huge contributor to the uncertainty. I mean, my view is that it just makes it all the more important that we use all the information we've got in the best way. And that's one of the reasons I published my model, try and draw attention to this. So one of the things statistics can do is help you tie together limited information in the best way and help you actually quantify, well, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And this is, if you like, the probability distribution of some of the various possible outcomes. So it's not really necessarily about giving a, a precise prediction of something. So often I find the most useful thing about statistics is say, well, actually, it's not so much that I'm, I'm forecasting the number the result's going to be 17, is that really it could be anywhere between 10 and 30. And it's actually that outcomes, which is often the most useful thing. So then you can tell people, you better be prepared for it to be anywhere between 10 and 30, rather than focusing on the fact that maybe it's most likely to be 17. Well, that's kind of how I've won bets uh, with uh, radio broadcasters, by looking at those sort of results and taking a punt on it. But um, well, well, you're not taking a punt. They're taking a punt on their opinion, and you're looking at some sensible numbers that someone has just put a lot of time into. Well, that's getting the, thing. the right answer. Yeah, that's the thing. They're they're making calls based on emotion and what they want to happen, rather than looking at da at data and seeing what possibly may happen. Um, and yeah. and I prefer the data aspect of it. But um, you, you mentioned that you're using three. There's about three regular polls. Do you mind us uh, answering if if you can uh, which polls you're inputting into this, and what and why you're leaving some out if you are leaving any yeah. out. Well, I'm basically including all the ones I've got access to the data for. So that's um, Roy Morgan. They're they're pretty much like clockwork, they seem to release one a month. And then there's the uh, One News, comma, Brunton. Yep. They're less regular, but they seem to be about every couple of months or so. And then there's the News Hub Read Research, so Read Research do that for News Hub. I think that's even less frequent than the uh, comma, Brunton one. So basically, they're the, they're the only three that I know of that do polls and publish them. And some are a public spirited volunteer or volunteers, um, as soon as those polls are published, updates the Wikipedia page. And I have a computer program that scrapes the Wikipedia page and puts it into um, a package written in this computer language called R, which is used by statisticians. Basically what that means is that any statistician using R can go to my uh, web page, um, grab, grab this software and it's got all conveniently packaged up for them all of the public polls, mm. actually back 
back all the way to 2002. So for the previous elections, yeah, there were quite a few more more um, uh, pollsters being involved. And, yeah, I have no idea why that was. Have you considered approaching uh, UMR and uh, Curia to, um, like Radio New Zealand have done for their poll of polls, to include their polling as well? Uh, if they're sharing it with Radio New Zealand, I'm pretty sure they'd share it with you as well. And then you've got, uh, you know, two political parties' own polling that's in there. Mm. Uh, um it, it it did it did cross my mind, but I thought there'd be too many complications. This is this is basically a hobby project for me. It's like I do it in my spare time because I'm interested. If I if I start getting into things like non-disclosure agreements and and so on, it's going to be a bit complicated. One of the issues is that all of my all of the software I've written and all the data is um, open source and public under general uh, use right. licenses, and yeah. so. I'd, I'd have to, I, you know, I have to find a way around that to keep some. Well, Labor aren't going to, yeah, Labor won't give you the details because um, they tend to give their own caucus numbers that aren't reflected in reality. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Labor will be give, giving anything out that the public can see. I call that McCully rounding. Because <laughs> Murray McCulley yeah. used to do that for various leaders. He'd yeah. take the numbers from the pollster and then round it up to a more suitable number that was palatable to the caucus. Yeah. yeah. So I, my philosophy on this is very much uh, open source, um, open data sort of approach. So all, all of my code is published on this code sharing site called GitHub, which is used by all sorts of software developers, not just statisticians. And basically anyone with the right skills can make what they call a clone of that and run it all from scratch. And if they disagree with any of the assumptions and so on I've built in, they can, you know, with the right skills, of course, they can modify that and do, do different ones. So that, that way, it's all, it's all just that much easier for me, basically. I, I, I'm reducing any of my discretion and being completely transparent about it all. Does any uh, do, uh, does your website direct people where they to where they can get all this information? Uh, yep, it's, it's it is all there. Yep. Great. Yeah, I'm just yep. looking at it. So on my main oh, website, yep. there's a NZ election forecast, and drop down from there, it's got stuff including. To the source code and so on. Yep, you've got links there to to the full description of the method and the source code. So um, when I do when I publish this uh, probably on Monday after I've edited it, we'll um, we'll include links to the site and uh, and those sorts of things as well. But um, I just sit here playing with all the different scenarios. It's fascinating. Peter, do the do the do you weight the polls based on their um, their quality, or or is it so limited that you don't really have an ability to to weight on quality? Well, it's it's interesting. I I don't weight them as such, but that's certainly something I probably should be thinking about. So the um, uh, like, I mean, you people probably know. Many of your listeners will know of the five thirty eight. Um, organization in uh, in the US that does a lot of yep. um, political um, aggregation and forecast and so on. So they have quite a uh, sophisticated method of, of rating all the many hundreds of organizations doing polls in the USA. You know, they rate them A, B, C minus and so on. So I, I don't have the um, 
information to to do that, and I'd be a little bit reluctant to <laughs> do it for these these uh, I'm sure very professional firms here. But the yeah, what, what, what I <laughs> what I do do is I adjust them up or down by how far they went. Like in yep. statistics, we we have basically you've got. Um, Variance, which, if you like, is the general quality of, of the survey. And then you've got bias. So bias in a statistical sense, which just means, you know, are they inclined to be too low or too high? Nothing to do with everyday language bias. So for each of these pollsters, I basically estimate, based on the past elections, how that particular pollster went with every particular party. So I've got effectively a little table where the rows are each pollster and the column is each party and in each cell of that table there's an estimate of how that particular pollster goes with with the with the party and um and then i use that to adjust the the vote so rather than doing it for the quality it's more like i'm trying to adjust for the bias what, what they call the house effect in in this sort of political science Okay. Are you able to tell us what the house effect is for the Roy Morgan poll, or is that just all over the place? So it's hard to predict a house effect. Um, let's see. I can sort of have a look. So basically, um, like if you look at uh, if you, if you look at Roy Morgan, for instance, they they tend to um, uh, they particularly overestimated the Greens a little bit worse than some of the others have. But on the other hand, yeah. they've been better with New Zealand First. So as we were saying before, pretty much everyone underestimates New Zealand First actual vote and overestimates the Greens. The um, the the Roy Morgan are a bit worse at that with the Greens, but a bit better with the uh, New Zealand First. Some of the other pollsters are, uh, um, are perhaps not quite so good with the um, with the uh, national and so on. Yeah, it's a uh, so most of this stuff is is in one spot or another on my website, although I'm not necessarily claiming it's going to be easy to find, because a lot of this sort of emerged in in me doing uh, various blog posts on the different things. There, I was gradually building up the model. So to really uh, to really get hold of some of these things, you need to browse through some of my old blog posts. One one sure. thing I've noticed with Roy Morgan is it tends to bounce around uh, for the major parties. You'll see a a plus three and then a minus three the following month. In my gut feel tells me that that's not actually what the electorate is doing, but um, it is giving results that you have to put into your model. Are you accounting for those bounces? Because they seem quite large in some sometimes month to month. Yeah. So I haven't actually looked into whether the individual pollsters have... Um, more volatility, but certainly I expect them to be um, bouncing around um, month to month anyway. So my my both both my methods. So I've I've actually got two models, but I've got a preferred one. But they they both have different ways of taking that into account, and they both basically expect there to be quite a bit of noise in the polls. So when you think about it, so like they they, they publish the two or three percent. Um, uh, sampling error. Um, the best guess is like the total survey error is going to be about, you know, one and a half times that. So like really, you're already looking at, um, uh, you know, whatever that is, like real polling error is probably three or five percent. 
Then when you look at comparing survey in one month to the month before, um, you know, that's going to go up again to about plus or minus five to eight percent. So like when, when you like, I'm just looking at like Roy Morgan's last two results for national, they went from 43 percent, 46 and a half percent. That went up three and a half percentage points. But I'd say that's three and a half plus or minus six, say. So it could could be anything really. So it's like, yeah, when, when you when you come down to comparing uh, uh, one particular poll to result in another particular poll, you're 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 really uh, uh, going to get quite a bit more noise than signal. Yeah, well, you have to look as also at what's happened in the last month to supposedly make that happen. Poll, polls are reflective of people's general attitudes, and I just don't I I just don't see that much fluctuation in political life that would lead to massive swings like that. Um, no, that's right. And in, in, in fact, like the political scientists are pretty sure that people change their mind quite slowly. Uh, there was actually a, a really fascinating study done in the 2012 US election where they were able to do like a really big study of, um, I think, people with PlayStations. So it wasn't trying to be representative of the US population, but it meant that they could survey the same people regularly over uh, quite a long period of time during the election. What they found was that a lot of the things which people were ascribing to, like, say, the post-convention bounce for each party, when, you know, after the convention, one of the parties that had the convention gets in the news and, and suddenly the intended vote for that candidate seems to go up. And people, if you naively interpret it, you think that, oh, well, people are getting enthused about this party and therefore they're going to vote for it. What they were able to show really conclusively with this study was that what's actually happening is that the response bias in the polls is changing. So basically the party that's got their party in the news with the convention, people who support that party get much more enthused and they're more likely to actually talk to the surveyor and say, yeah, I'm going to go out and vote and vote for my party. People that are sort of getting more negative coverage or aren't in the coverage at all are just not responding to surveys at that point. Ah, so it's not actually it's not actually really, really changing the voting intention at all. It's all just uh, showing in the in the bias and that non-response bias. Well, it's actually... Um, noise reporting on the noise from the media. Yeah, it's um, it's quite um, yeah, it, it, it's quite disturbing if you're a political scientist. But yeah, it does mean that the thing to worry about is the um, definitely looking at the overall trends and the averages that, that that emerge through those things, rather than paying attention to to you know this survey's gone up, this one's gone down. So that then leads to. Um, a frustration that I hear from a, a statistician friend of mine who advises me almost daily, really, but uh, that the media tend to simplify the poll results that they're delivering to the public. Do you find that particularly annoying as a statistician? And are there any pundits out there or or outlets that annoy you more than others on that basis? <laughs> I'm pleased to say that I don't listen to enough pundits and outlets to do a comparative analysis of them. The um, I do get dreadfully annoyed at people um, 
uh, treating a single poll result as much more significant than it should be. So the things which we were saying just there, you know, that they're going to have a very large component of noise and people greatly overinterpret what really was a single poll from 800 people. They should be looking at the last 10 polls and seeing what they're saying uh, taken together. Now, the, the problem is that when you, when you do it that way, uh, it changes much less rapidly, so there's less to talk about. Um, you know, I would much rather they talk more about the policies, really, rather than the, uh, the polls bouncing up and down. So, yeah, I do find that annoying. So, Peter, are you making predictions for the election that we take now, or should, should we be looking at your predictions on the night before the election to see how accurate they are? Mm. So, um, I, I would hope that they all stand up. So, like, um, when I say that, you know, there's a 60% chance of New Zealand first being needed, that, that is my best prediction now. Obviously, when I've got more information in, I'll think that more information would be there. But, like, if, if, if you're a betting person and someone was giving you odds based on um, uh, there only being a 50% chance of NZ first being needed, basically my model is saying that you should be able to make money by taking those odds because, on average, if you did that, you would win. So, and I'd be confident in uh, in in well recommending that, I suppose, up, up to a certain point. And the um, but yeah, obviously the predictions on the night before the election should be better than the ones now, just because there's more information and there's less uncertainty. As we get towards the election, presuming that we do get um, you know more polls than we currently have. Uh, each time that I update the model with the new polling data, um, we will probably see the probability start to converge on one of the two results. And that's basically because the, the some of the uncertainty is being squeezed out each time. That That's the, the time series forecasting element of the uncertainty. And instead, we're left just with the uncertainty from the from the sampling and all the other non-sampling errors with the with the mm. polls, so it's never going to be a complete prediction. Well, not unless there's things head towards being a landslide, of course, one party or the other. But we should we should start to see, you know, that that 60% number will start to either get higher or uh, or will start to get lower, depending on um, uh, you know what the extra information tells us, of course. Mm. But 60% still going to be you know, I think as good an estimate as you can make um, with the information we've got today. Could, could you okay. just explain quickly for for us and, and for the listeners the thinking behind the uh, Maori electorates uh, selections that you've got there? Okay. So um, for the benefit of listeners without seeing radio podcasts, <laughs> the... Um, uh, basically, on on this web page, which I do hope everyone will go and have a look, there's a bunch of sliders, which are basically the probability of uh, people winning various identified important electorates. So there's Epsom and Aharu, and then there's the, uh, the all, all the Maori electorates are in there. So um, it's actually a while back since I did that. But thinking about it, the probabilities which have come in there have are based on what happened in each of those electorates in the last election and um, but since then there was an announcement that uh, two of the parties weren't going to compete with each other 
and give you an indication of how little I pay attention to these things. I can't even remember which two parties they were. Mana so I made some, yeah. So I, I, I made some assumptions on what was going to happen to their combined vote. So basically, I sort of predicted that half, I think something like half the vote of one of those parties would go to the other one, and the other half people would be discouraged and just not vote at all. And so I used that to to get a uh, estimate of the base, the numbers of people who'd vote for Labour versus the other two who are now effectively acting in, in a, um, well, I guess there's an agreement not to compete with each other. So I, I've expressed all of the sliders as the probability of Labour winning against whichever one of those two is left standing with them. Um, yeah, based pretty much on, on those proportions of the vote. It's not a terribly scientific way of doing it. Um, you know, I'd much rather have a dozen uh, polls in each of those electorates, but that's clearly not going to happen. And so that was one of the reasons for giving people the sliders so they've got the chance of playing around with them themselves to see what impact it makes. Cool. That gives me a, a, a way to play with those, but Maori electorates are notoriously difficult to poll and notoriously difficult to... Uh, work out if anyone's actually going to get up and try and tip out Labour. Yeah, that, that, was, that was my understanding. So it seemed that basically in the absence of uh, real information there, it's best to let the user play with a range of scenarios, which is which is one, one of the principles which, which we'll do in like um, modern trying to help people use evidence to inform their decision making. Again, it's a bit like that thing I was saying before where we talk about range of a prediction and try and get people to focus on better prepare for the good and the bad scenario, not just the middle point. It's also a matter of giving them tools like this one that lets people say, okay, we really don't know what's going to happen here, so we'll give you a little lever and you can put the lever where you think it's going to be realistic or and, and you can see what the probable impact is of that. Yeah, it's also a nightmare trying to run a campaign in a Maori seat. I'd, I'd, I'd hate to have to do it. it. It's very hard to to connect with people in in massive seats, and they're so far spread out. So, uh, apart from the polling, just the campaigning is very difficult. Yeah, if you take Tito yeah. Toker out, the, the the electorate's basically split in two. There's those who are in Auckland and everyone in Northland. Um, yes. Yeah. Same with Waikato, that, that goes right up into South Auckland. Yeah, so it's uh, Hauraki Waikato would be similar. It's two very different demographics of people, you know, urban versus rural um, or small town uh, across a, a massive electorate. I'd hate to even be an MP in those electorates. Uh, incredibly hard work. Yeah. Just impossible to, to to provide really good constituent service when, you know, you're like the um, uh, Ikara Rafferty MP Mika Faitari, she's in, in Wainuiamata one day and has to get right up the top of the escape the next day to deal with issues up there. Very, mm. very, very hard for her to, to cover the entire electorate. Mm. So, um, Peter, the, the 
One really interesting comment, I followed Nate Silver's podcast very closely after the election, and the most interesting comment was he was saying after the election that people kept coming up to him and said, hey, Silver, great model, and it's the only time I've ever heard him swear, and he said, you're a fucking idiot. That was what he was thinking, um, because his model wasn't great. It had a whole lot of um, problems with it, and it was, you know, they're using it in the wrong way. Um, is, is that the way that you see your own model? Um, I don't, I'd have to look at what, what he was saying there. I mean, I think his his model was one of the better ones around. We were talking about the 2016 presidential election, yep. I presume. Yeah, yeah. and um, they. Uh, what's interesting is that, of course, he doesn't do any polls himself, so he's dependent on what the pollsters are doing. And the pollster community had a very hard look at themselves, obviously, after that election. And... Um, uh, to be honest, they in in particularly in the states that they got particularly wrong, they were doing some really quite uh, poor practices. So they they weren't adequately waiting for um, I forget what, but it was something which they certainly should have been in their waiting models, uh, age or, or something like that. So so basically, like when, when you conduct a survey, um, you know, ever since about the 1950s, the surveys have known that. Um, if you've got auxiliary information about the whole population, you should uh, basically change your the, the weight you give to each person in your sample to to represent that. So, like typically, for instance, women are much more likely to answer surveys than men. So you have to give the their responses less weight, and and the the men that you do give, you've got to give them more weight, or else you end up. Um, Miss, miss, um, Lopsided. estimating all sorts of things, yeah, yeah, and so, so, um, some of those pollsters were were missing out on uh, some things which should have been actually quite business as usual for them. But um, Nate Silver's actual model, well, if I remember it, I think he had Hillary Clinton at about sixty five percent chance of winning. And um, yeah, it didn't turn out that way. But like, he was a it was a much better model than some of the other ones, which had her at ninety nine percent. So at least well, he, well, he, were, he yeah yeah like he he kept saying, well, we're giving Trump one three chance, which no one else seemed to be willing to say. Well, the thing is, yeah. though, is people go to the casino and uh, bet against odds worse than that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or the race, yeah. or the race course. You know, I, I mean, there's there's quite. You know, good good statistical predictions will always be of probabilities rather than of certainties, but that makes it quite hard, you know, because to to evaluate them afterwards. Because you can always say, well, yeah, I was always right. I said he had one in three chance of winning, and and, and he won, so you know, it wasn't too far out. There, there are actually <laughs> methods of evaluating the, the these things. You basically, you know, the more certain you said something was. Are going to happen, and if it didn't happen, you get a big penalty. Whereas if you're very certain it's going to happen, and it, and it does happen, you know you get a big bonus. If you say you, you, it's just a coin flip and it happens, you sort of don't get a penalty or a bonus. So there, there's 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 statistics they can use to evaluate that. So my gut feel is that Nate Silver's one would have done pretty well, probably much better than the competition. Uh, I'm sure someone has evaluated that. I, I haven't seen that. So while you know maybe he might be saying, yeah, you know, there were lots of problems with the with the model. Yeah. Well, as as they say in, in statistics, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Also, though, of course, you've identified that some of the some of the data that was coming in, 
uh, was rubbish. And how do you account for that until after the fact? You, you, you don't know it's rubbish until it produces a result that's, that's out of whack. So he had yeah. to accept all of that data and learn from that. But if he now applies a rule to say one particular polling company has a poor uh, methodology, he weights that accordingly, but then they've learnt from that and changed their methodology. Until he knows they've changed their methodology, then he's still going to have that poor weighting against them. That's, that's right. That 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 just makes it all very difficult. I mean, I, I've very much got the same problem with, you know, because we were talking before about, you know, one of the polling firms, um, uh, you know, particularly overestimates the Greens. Well, they will certainly have noticed that and they will be looking long and hard at what their problem is to do that. They may well have fixed it by now. And the, one of the issues is that we only get to see every three years or so. So, of course, that's a lot better than in a lot of social science where you never get to see, uh, com confront your measurement with reality. Uh, the One of the things that makes elections interesting is that every every three years or so, you actually really do see the definitive actual vote. And you can compare that with all of your estimates you've been making of voting intention. You often don't have that luxury. Mm. But, it, but, but it is quite rare. You know, so you saw people talking about after the US election, oh, big data has failed and, you know, it's so bad. This, this has nothing to do with big data. There's only been... I don't know, um, only been a few dozen modern elections. It's actually a very small data set to act, try and evaluate uh, how how things go. And in our case, we've got less than a dozen elections since MMP came in. So um, it's, it's actually, in that sense, a very small data set. Well, that's kind of what I was saying to this, uh, this senior news person who was saying, oh, we're going to cut back on the polling. I said, well, that's the wrong, that's the wrong thing to do. The, the answer to uh, people losing confidence in polling is not to cut back and have less of it. It's to actually do more of it and get it right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, if we, if we only had one poll every three months and, uh, you know, as, as we discussed before, individual poll is mostly noise, uh, at some point you're below this critical threshold where you say, well, we might as well not be doing this at all. Yeah, if you take Fairfax, yeah. they basically only do one poll a year. It's kind of pointless. Uh, it doesn't add an actual, any realistic data point to compare with anything. Mm. Yeah. Peter, um, one of the, the models that I'm very fascinated in, and I've followed British politics very closely, and, and the YouGov, I think on the about the 30th of May, came out with something saying that the Tories were going to end up with not enough uh, seats to form a majority, and they turned out to be pretty right on, on that. The, the result reflected their model. Um, have you looked at that model? Yeah, I, I have looked at that, and, um, I mean, I think that was quite an impressive result for um, a fairly new experimental model for them, and they had the courage to go up against the pundits, which is quite sort of sensible. I mean, it's worth pointing out that in all these recent uh, so-called polling failures have really been better characterised as punditry failures. Like the, <laughs> the pundits have always been more wrong than the polls were, and, and it was more about interpretation. In the case of the YouGov, they had, there was a really nice application of the modern statistical methods that basically makes the most use of all the information that's around. 
and they've got a really difficult estimation job, much harder for the UK than here, because they've got 650 constituencies that they need to estimate, and there's half a dozen parties that have got a good chance of winning a reasonable number of seats. So it's a really, really difficult thing to do, and, and there may be a national swing, but there's very, very strong geographical elements and um, and and hierarchies of that, you know, because there's the Scotland effect, never mind, or the the little areas within Scotland. So that their model was a really good means of uh, trying to combine all of that while still accepting that you know you're not going to have a good poll regularly done in every one of the 650 constituencies. Mind you, they've still got vastly more data than us. I understand they had about five or seven thousand interviews done every wow. day. Which is yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> which, which is expensive, but yeah. the, they they tie that in with a whole lot of really good auxiliary information on each of the individual electorates, so they could sort of model what the overall, if you like, national effect was, as well as a hierarchy of the different regional effects. And as you're saying, it, it turned out to be not too bad, and and quite different from some of the more simpler models, and definitely what the pundits were saying. So yeah, hats off to them. I d I don't, we couldn't do it in New Zealand. We don't have, obviously, the, the data to do it. But luckily, we don't also have as complex a problem as they do because the constituency effect is much, much less important here as long as you get a reasonable estimate of the New Zealand-level uh, party vote. Yeah, thanks for that. that I assumed that the lack of data would make it very difficult to use that model, but it was a, a particularly impressive piece of um, of maths and prediction for YouGov to get it right. And I listened to the disbelief of all the pundits and wondered uh, what YouGov would be saying the day after the election. So your wish list would include uh, more polls? Uh, yeah, I could have another... Thousand years of elections and their results would be handy too. <laughs> We're probably about as likely to get that as more polls. Yeah. Well, what we yeah. actually need is the media to start investing in better information uh, and polling as part of that information. But um, as you said, the the biggest problem that you see is not so much the polls or the data. It's the uh, punditry, get, just getting things wrong or reading things wrong or wishing something was uh, other than what the data was showing. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, my real wish list would be actually more along the lines of, yeah, I'd like it if the commentators um, uh, paid more attention to uncertainty, uh, both in their own thinking and in the way they present things and were much freer about saying that, look, really... You know, we're not sure what's going to happen here. It could range from this result to that result. And uh, a bit less, a bit more humbleness and modesty in what we know might mean that we can uh, uh, have, have some discussions on, on what actually is happening and uh, the importance of, of the relative importance of various things and indeed what signal is showing through all of that noise. I better bear that in mind then when I'm on radio. Yeah, don't make up too much, Cam. <laughs> no, bring in that in, that uncertainty, or maybe I'll just have to have on my phone um, a link to this page so I can uh, say, oh, no, look, uh, you know, Peter says that the uh, probability of that happening is this. Well, I mean, since you know, I'm, I'm looking back at that page, I just reset all the assumptions, and it's showing the chance of the basically the current 
coalition. And as you're saying, it says it's about 0.33 or, or whatever. But it's got this this histogram of, of those outcomes, and it's basically saying anywhere you could end up with anywhere between 51 and 70 seats. Yeah, so it's, uh, that's quite a quite a range of incomes now, or outcomes. Now, obviously, it's most likely to be 61 or 62, but um, uh, you know, I'm not going to be astonished if it's anywhere in that range. No, that's right. And if you if you just play with it again, um, again, even with uh, National New Zealand First, for instance, the range is uh, 61 to 76. So it's quite a range there, but it's sitting in around about the 69 mark by the looks of it is is the centre yeah, of that bit. Yeah. yeah. If you hover over a bar, it will tell you the chance of exactly that number of seats. All right, 14.8% for that. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. It's a, look, it's a, I think this is a useful tool, and I think that pundits out there and indeed um, those political tragics uh, – who are really interested in this sort of stuff should be visiting this site and checking in every time there's a poll come out and they see on the news, um, you know, uh, some of the pundits making their predictions. Check that against the probability, and I think they'll they'll get a, a much better appreciation of the polling. There's typically a day or so lag, of course, before I get round to it. Oh, that's all right. I'll follow. I'll follow up the polls with a day or so lag and uh, say, well, this is what the poll said, but this is what the uh, statisticians are saying. Mm. It'll just add to add to the debate, I think. Mm. Great. Oh well, it was uh, good talking. Well, Thank really you very much, Peter. Very, very interesting. Yep, we've really appreciated this chat, and I think the uh, the listeners will have a better understanding now of the science of polling and the probabilities that go into that. So, thanks again, uh, Peter Ellis, for coming on, and you can go back to your professional statistician job. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>